Hello listeners, we are back once again with another episode of Quote Unquote with KK. This is our uh, wealthy event and I have invited a very close industry associate and a friend who we've been exchanging notes on the Indian startup ecosystem. I have Venkatesh Shukla, who is member of National Startup Advisory Council, chaired by our Commerce Minister. Congratulations, Venkatesh, for uh, this prestigious uh, assignment that you've taken. Venkatesh uh, is a partner of uh, a micro VC fund called Monte Vista Capital out of the Silicon Valley. He was a former chairman of Thai Global and currently the president of uh, Thai Silicon Valley. Venkatesh has been associated with uh, NASCOM on the startup side, has been talking and mentoring several startups both in India and um, and uh, and overseas, including the Silicon Valley. Interestingly, Venkatesh also is a president, uh, founding president of Foundation for Excellence for providing scholarship to thousands of poor students to pursue engineering and medical education in India. I had the privilege to interact with Venkatesh back in 2011 when I was part of the organizing committee of NASCOM Product Conclave and Venkatesh along with several other uh, folks from the Syndicon Valley had consented to travel down all the way to Bangalore and moderate a few sessions and talk about the different issues uh, on the Indian startup ecosystem. Obviously, over the last 10 years, the Indian ecosystem has matured and today we are at a cusp to discuss the future of Indian startup e- ecosystem, ready to be the next Silicon Valley. Welcome, Venkatesh, to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think this is a, this is a subject that is close to my heart about uh, startups uh, in Silicon Valley, startups in India, and in general. Uh, the transformational change that uh, uh, that innovative startups brings to the society. So, excited to be here. Thank you, Venkatesh. Let us kick off on uh, some of the key issues which you have actually outlined in your article in India today. For uh, the benefit of our audience, would you like to reiterate some of the issues and then we pick up these issues one by one and uh, go deeper and talk about it? Sure, sure. Happy to. So, I think the key points that I made was that 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 since the prime minister launched his you know his uh, startup india you know program in january of 2016 and i had the privileges here of uh, for contributing to that launch and the policies behind that behind the scenes uh, working with amitabh kant on that it's you know really gratifying to see how the startup movement has captured the imagination of younger generation in India and uh, how and now it's really gratifying to hear that there are more than 30 unicorns. You know, nothing succeeds like success for each each person you see, who becomes the founder CEO of a unicorn. That person inspires a thousand other people to become entrepreneurs and take the plunge and try to recreate that magic. And that's the you know, that's the flywheel that keeps Silicon Valley going. You know, each time there is a Google or a Facebook or Airbnb or Uber or a Snowflake or a Zscaler, you know, hundreds of entrepreneurs get motivated by that, saying that if he can do it, I can do it. And uh, that's how the flywheel of entrepreneurship keeps going. So so it's good to see that India has had that level of success in just such such a short time that, you know, but the, the, the biggest transformation that I see is that some of these startups see, have touched the lives of ordinary people, middle class people. So now my my 70 year old uh, sister in in india she gets food delivered you see through through swiggy or all those things she makes her you know she makes her doctor's appointment through practo she her daughter in law teaches students in in her house uh, you know maths and stuff so she keeps busy after her son goes to think so middle class now has seen how innovation and entrepreneurship can solve problems so that's the very fundamental shift in the mindset that I've seen that that is not just the because of this uh, because this changing attitude towards the value of startups the policymakers you know the 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 thinkers you know the, the influencers 
the middle class, they all think now that innovation is a, is a solution to India's problems. Now people are asked questions like, you know, five, six years ago, people used to say, where are the startups? What are they doing? You know, there's just a, a flip cart and all those things. They're trying to sell me the same thing. Now they are saying, you see, how come they're not solving, you see, this, uh, this climate, this thing? How come they're not doing this? How come they're not doing this? Just the shift in the kind of questions that people ask tells me that people have begun to see innovation as a solution to problems that India faces. And that's a massive mind shift from five years, six years, 10 years ago, when people expected government to do everything. Correct. Well said, uh, and uh, a great uh, kickoff to our session today. Venkatesh, you've seen the Silicon Valley, you operated there. You've been part of our NASCOM and our Indian uh, ecosystem as well. And obviously, if you see, India is five times more than the US in terms of population size itself. But the critical issue is it's a cohort within cohort. And hence, some Somewhere people say, in spite of uh, India having jumped to the third largest startup ecosystem in the world within 10 years. And last year, I guess we even during the pandemic, we raised almost about $10 billion in 2020. And I think we have 50 more unicorns in our pipeline, hopefully, which will emerge in the next year or two. Do you think in India has the capability to be the next Silicon Valley in this part of the world? And we can probably take up points uh, around each one of the issues, what could be the critical success factors to be a Silicon Valley in this part of the world? Yeah, let me just uh, touch upon a few things. Does India have the potential? Yeah, of course it does have the potential, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's no reason for Indians to leave India to become successful at Silicon Valley. There's no reason for that, right? I mean, if if India can create those conditions, why would anyone leave? No one wants to, no, no one is a, you know, given a choice, everything being equal, people like to stay where they are. So, so the question is, what it is that, that that remains to be done? And there are a lot of things that remain to be done. And I think in that article, I touched upon a few things. There are some, you know, I think just the, the compliance paperwork, the burden of compliance in India is irritating, very high and meaningless. Just to issue shares, just to accept, just to accept investment. I'm told that there are three separate board meetings as they have to be convened and one is to, to dis, one is to say okay we will raise money and this is how much we'll raise and stuff so you have to be very very precise then after you have raised money and then after the time of issuing the shares so three separate board meetings have to be convened just think about it amount the burden of compliance that a tiny startup has to go through and the amount of money it has to spend on lawyers and accountants just to do all this needless kind of compliance all these things were meant all these laws were meant to regulate and control what they thought was dishonest big companies. These are yeah, not and you know, we've also fought a decoin and uh, angel tax for so many years, which was unnecessary as well. Totally unnecessary. I, I personally got involved in that. I wrote a, a very strong article in Economic Times on that. I, in fact, you see, met the Prime Minister about it. I was so yeah, frustrated. That you I, know, I, I met the former finance minister who gave this tax when he was first addressing his first public meeting as president of India. And on the sidelines, I asked him what led him to do this. Uh, apparently, this was totally against uh, the canons of taxation because what was it really delivering to the government in terms of taxes? In terms of the impact, it created a lot more levels of dishonesty under valuation and, and, and doing a lot many things which could have been perpetrated, which we, we should have avoided from. Do you think this whole regulatory framework needs to be even simplified now that you're part of the National Advisory for Startup Council. I mean, we definitely have a lot many more points to talk about, but that's not the intent of today's talk. But I think there needs to be a serious messaging uh, to as part of this uh, to the regulators and the ministers. Yeah. Seriously so you know, take right, this because right. employment generation is one of the key issues that we are facing coming yeah. out of pandemic. So, you know, I think but all these things I would put in the category of irritants. Uh, okay. They are not showstoppers and uh, there are a lot of showstopping things as they have been removed. So in last five years, there has been a lot of progress in getting rid of a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of show-stopping kind of things, right? So that's a good thing. But one one thing that nobody seems to focus on, and that's a very, very germane, you see, to success of startups in India, is 
this incredibly slow, painful judicial process for resolving right. disputes. And just just think about it, right? If you are a small startup, you are you know you are billing. You see the the you know your customer is is the government or is a or is a big company, and you agreed to this thing. You supplied something to them, and they don't pay you in 90 days as they agreed. What do you do? What do you do? You have absolutely no recourse. You can right. take them to the court, but the court the structure of the judicial system is such that it favors the big guy because they can deal with all these indefinite postponements. They can do all these things. Meanwhile, the startup is out of cash. Correct. Uh, if a startup, you know, some employee of the startup walks away with the source code, what recourse does a startup have? If someone writes a bad check to you, what recourse do you have? None. Because they, everybody in India understands that going to the court is not a solution to anything. Correct. So, I mean, I think, uh, unfortunately, this is a state subject. This is not a central subject. But but the central government has shown that when it is motivated and when it is convinced, they are they are ready to move into what is strictly straight subject, just as they have done for this uh, mandi and uh, food and agriculture and, stuff. Correct. So so I think uh, this issue is not as well understood at the state level as it is at the central level. So 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 central government has to show some leadership in terms of resolving this massive bottleneck. India will never become like Silicon Valley so long as it does not fix its uh, judicial system. Here, I agree here, with you. Here, you see, you know, nobody takes it, nobody takes even a smallest guy for granted right. because he can go to the court and get a very, very quick redressal. Do you think as part of a recommendation, we should be have an out-of-court out system like a national tribunal for startup where a quick redressal system could be set up rather than going through a normal court proceedings to set up cases and then it goes through what multiple dates before even uh, you know you get a stay order and then further hearings and adjudication do you, you think know? we could probably have a fast track system outside of uh, our judicial system, but following our judicial system as a national tribunal and within every state, you have a state tribunal which would do a faster redressal of disputes and between startups and uh, their customers or their co-founders or different proponents, even the government or the bankers or the investors. If you think uh, that could be a way forward, I think we could move much faster. You know, I don't know what the exact mechanism should be. I mean, ideally, it should be a structural reform of the existing judicial system but short of that what you're suggesting is it makes a lot of sense now let me pick up on and then your ideas and thought on on this whole thing of building the next generation of our ecosystem here and can we really be a silicon valley of this part of the world so one of the feelings i got was that around the pandemic a little bit of slowing down and whether the silicon valley had reached the end of the s curve in their cycle of innovation or startups while uh, india was going into the next wave of uh, or the next generation of uh, the curve having done the me too models of silicon valley post the lehman crisis trying as you mentioned earlier trying to address the middle 1 billion cohort and uh, working at solving um, the real local issues here do you think this is a right comparison and are we at a at, at a juncture of really disrupting and going at a level of a, of a silicon valley in in india you know the silicon valley's demise has been uh, predicted you see a number of times in the past Correct. but it keeps staying you see at the uh, but, but it keeps uh, innovating you see in the new cycles you see with the new energy and with new successes and the reason for that is very very simple actually there are a lot of there are three or four or five ingredients that make it you see very very a fertile ground for for sustained innovation one of them is of course the the well-known ones are the fact that there are two world-class universities and they have figured out you see a way to work with the you know with the entrepreneurial ecosystem and along with that the whole accounting and legal systems has uh, has evolved you see with that yeah so so that's the that's the well-known portion of it the other the other thing that people don't give enough credit for is the fact that in in the you know different parts of the world when people become successful they leave that to go somewhere so people who are successful in let's say in in russia or or, or france or, or uk or somewhere or spain when they are successful they typically pack up and leave and go somewhere else uh, in silicon valley when people are successful thanks to the weather and thanks to the you know all the good conditions you see here people don't go anywhere 99 percent of the people stay here and when they're here they 
their their time and their money becomes available as a resource to the next generation of startups. So very successful qualified mentors are available for the next generation of it, which is a very very which comes in the this thing of soft power, right? Correct. The other other thing that makes a lot of difference is that all the potential acquirers, a majority of potential acquirer of a startup, regardless of which space you are in, are also in Silicon Valley. So it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to run into someone at a party, at a coffee shop, at a conference, or you see to arrange, you see a meeting and go see them. So that's a that gives a huge, huge sort of advantage to startups that are here. And that's why you find that even those countries like Israel, where they, it's an innovation powerhouse, every single company from Israel ends up have, have, having, you see, a very, very strong Silicon Valley presence. So that thing cannot be discounted. But having, and the other thing that's, that's uh, uh, that works in favor of Silicon Valley is that's a very open system. There are people from 90 different nationalities who are attracted to Silicon Valley to, you know, to work here and, uh, and, and attracts the best of the talent from all over the world. And that diversity of talent, you know, leads to leads to some innovation. So for instance, this WhatsApp thing, it was started by a U- son of a Ukrainian immigrant who grew up in Ukraine. The, he knew that uh, the biggest problem in the world is very, very low bandwidth internet and very unreliable uh, internet access. So that's how he built his WhatsApp. I mean, this whole footprint, memory footprint, the bandwidth requirement for WhatsApp are extremely low. So that kind of uh, insight and that kind of a thing, you have the, the you have the technology infrastructure of, of Silicon Valley. But on top of that, you have this insight that only a third world country uh, person could have had and build the, the, the product accordingly. So those are some of the advantages. Uh, and I'm not saying that the that Silicon, that India needs to replicate, uh, you know, all of that. But, you know, unless B2B kind of startups in India, they have a long time to go. The only ones that are successful are the ones that go out of India. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, but the, one of the most important once is that uh, that if you have to attract, uh, you have to operate in the global market, if you have to have global subsidiaries, if you have to attract global capital and global talent, the laws and regulations in India are not optimal. So some of the best performing ones, there's a, there's an entrepreneur I would not name, he started in Bombay and he was very successful. Then he moved to Dubai as a headquarter. So I asked him, I said, why did you move? And he says, you know, if I have to set up global subsidiaries in each country, I have to operate. Sending money and receiving money from them was was a nightmare. The amount of paperwork that you have to do and the jump, the hoops through which you have to jump to say that this is not, uh, this is violating FEMA or whatever this thing, uh, FCRA, whatever those things are. Yeah. And I say it was so, uh, the burden of that was so excessive that he, he moved to Dubai and his life has become see, 10 times simpler. So I think uh, India has a long way to go. You know, the companies that are targeting only India as a market can continue to stay in India. But companies that are targeting global markets, which would be all B2B companies. B2B companies they have to go out because okay. uh, the B2B market you see, is, is a lot bigger outside than it is in India. So if they are going out, they have no choice but to incorporate outside. Right. Like uh, our generation where there was intellectual capital flight, we are seeing uh, startup uh, flight because of not a great enabling environment for them to go global. Correct? Right? Yeah. And you know, people blame foreign investors and stuff for this. It, you know, it's like they should really look in the mirror. Are you creating conditions to see where the startups see can operate a global company based out of India. And then the issues of double taxation and all those things come in with their set of challenges for an entrepreneur. Well said. Venkatesh, let me now delve a little bit deeper. You did uh, say what were the key, critical success factor of how Silicon Valley emerged and it keeps on reinventing themselves and, and, and keeps on going. Let me also talk about what's a sustainable ecosystem that we should probably setting up in this part of the world for our sort of startup to provided a, a right uh, inputs and boost and would love to get your thoughts as you outline what what are the critical success factors for Silicon Valley. How do you think uh, we could probably enable all of that in India? Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, you, we have discussed some of the ingredients, I think, which is which is much more efficient judicial system of redress. There is uh, also, you know, reducing the burden of compliance and even for simple things like issuing stocks and accepting money and things like that. The third one is creating conditions, looking at the, the the whole range of regulations that allow companies to operate a global company out of India efficiently. And, you know, look at 
the best practices outside. What is Singapore doing? What is Dubai doing? What is US doing? And incorporate some of those practices in India. So those were the three, you know, at a very high level. But in terms of softer things, this, uh, this, some of the things that you have suggested, actually, you mentioned, you see, which is, uh, you know, how do you encourage universities and professors to engage, you see, more constructively, see, with the entrepreneurial ecosystem. In US also, this is a difficult problem to solve. Some of the universities have done a much, much better job than others. So universities like Stanford, Berkeley, MIT, these are at the forefront of that. So what they have done is they 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 not only have a lot of uh, research budget, but they encourage their professors to step out, start a company, building on their own innovation and to succeed and to become rich on that so long as the university gets a small cut of that. And the university doesn't ask for a whole lot. I mean, I think Stanford, I think where a lot of innovations have come and become successful companies, I'm told that somewhere between, they ask for some you know, ownership of somewhere between two to 5% when the company is starting out. And by the time the company has gone through everything and has, is ready for public, their ownership percentage comes down to 1%. But if you happen to have 1% of Google, that's a lot of money. Correct. So this this enabling this this virtuous cycle of uh, innovation and the individuals benefiting from that innovation, and then coming back to the to the university to continue their they bring that practical industry experience and come back you see and start that cycle all over again. There are a number of professors you see at Stanford and Berkeley who are some of the richest people in Silicon Valley. So allowing that to happen, I think is a good one. You mentioned research labs. We have done a very good job in India of commercial research that comes out of our research lab. In fact, the whole structure of research lab, I think needs to be, it's very bureaucratic and it's top down and it's very siloed. The best research, the best innovation, the best research happens typically at the intersection of two disciplines. And if you, the way the national lab, labs are organized, or at least that's what my understanding was see, until a few years ago, the way the national labs are organized, that each one is focuses on one small piece. Correct. And they really Correct. don't interact with each other. They don't interact, you see, with the universities that much. They don't have that dynamism, you see, of a new generation of students coming, you see, doing research and leaving. These are the jobs like a government service job. You get in and you keep going up, you see, you know, on based on a time-bound promotion. And uh, nothing bad happens to you in terms of uh, losing your job or anything. And nothing good happens to you that if you... So there's no downside. There's no significant downside. There is no significant upside. So there is very little incentive for risk taking. So, you know, all those assets are there, but not sure that they are organized for innovation. How do we commercialization that, of that innovation? Uh, correct. I can just give you one example now. A very shining example is the Bharat Biotech. And since I had been part of the journey of creating the ignition grant policy, biotech ignition grant policy as a framework, and then that led to the creation of the India Startup Fund under the BJP. Yeah. One of the critical issues that these sort of innovative startups face is it's not about just the money. It's also a whole host of footing infrastructure, which you could lean on from, say, the research lab. You don't need to buy a huge equipment. You could just work and collaborate with these research labs and get your work done in the initial phases of your startup. Like some of the IITs are supporting some of the startup as I see through their incubation and acceleration process. And perhaps the issue here is the professors and the mentors, which obviously we have this utter innovation mission also it's not of great quality like what you said uh, you know millionaires and billionaires getting created out of the professors in in the silicon valley how do we really motivate sort of professors or the teachers or the mentors to participate in the wealth creation through the startup process i guess that's the issue which we should we would be challenged with as we go along yeah yeah no i think that's the that's the heart of the problem right because ultimately you can uh, you can copy uh, the business model see from from silicon value other places and start companies in India. But uh, the true impact happens to see when a research that is grounded is see in the realities of India that gets 
commercialized. That's that's where you'll have a much much bigger impact. And by the way, that's happening. That it's not it's not the case that it's all binary zero or one. Some right. of it is already happening. I've met uh, I met an entrepreneur who just uh, who just raised you see a round of money here in Silicon Valley. His company was valued at nine hundred million, and mm-hmm. he started out in the incubator of IIT Madras. Right. So these things are happening. There's another there's another entrepreneur I know who is making this industrial grade fans, and he collaborated with IIT Bombay in terms of uh, in terms of building the fans that are now he has a global market for that. So so some of that is happening. I think uh, I think it's I don't know what kind of uh, bottlenecks exist today in terms of uh, in terms of making that you, see, you know a much much bigger proportion. But uh, but I would think that uh, universities and research labs as you have a, a huge role to play in right. terms of uh, because these researchers are thinking of solving the next problem anyway right i don't know about atal innovation mission i don't know how successful that has been i have i have no idea i know that uh, they have been starved of the funds after the first year that they got money i'm aware of at least one such uh, private sector led initiative that was funded by atal innovation mission they got money only one year and they haven't received any money after that for the next 2 3 years but they keep having to comply with all kinds of government bureaucratic see forms and this and this and they haven't seen the money they keep filling all those forms in the hope that someday the money will come right uh, and that's the same issue of uh, the whole accelerators where the government is wanting to cross subsidize but i want to just discuss uh, since you are going to be part of the startup advisory council how do we really i mean there are good intentions with this government i wouldn't say that but there are the money flow for some of these initiatives with the private sector chokes it down and slows down the whole process per se and that needs some innovative thinking for us to build a, a new way of working or collaborating with the government whether it's for the funds whether it's for the government owned uh, universities or whether it's the government owned uh, research labs i guess we need to really rethink and overhaul this whole process where the budgetary support that the government is giving actually tickles down to the accelerators and all these uh, other players from the private sector side otherwise these are only missions in on on paper then you know i think the problem is is that the the way the government spends money and uh, thanks to you see the the bad experiences over the last 70 years you see where how the corruption and stuff the requirement for audit trail the requirement right. for objectivity and all those things are so strong that uh, the, the the burden of compliance is extremely high before anybody can dish out any money and the only solution to that is what what government did uh, you know with with the matching fund kind of thing where they give the money to sidb and sidb sets up its own council that selects the funds to to who who gets the matching fund and that completely short circuits the whole process where now you are delegating your you know you you gave money to some agency sidb and now they are using see the judgment of experts to dish out the money and uh, so that i think some mechanism of that kind i think atal innovation mission if we were to be spun off from in, from the government instead of being a government department it becomes an independent agency and then you see you know that burden of compliance doesn't translate trickle down to every single recipient of of the money i think government had considered at the time of inception see of having atal innovation mission as a separate agency rather than is a rather than some a part of niti ayog Niti Aayog is government, basically. Correct. So they had considered it, but I don't know why they didn't go down that path. I'm sure they must have had good reasons. I'm not aware of the thought process of that, but something like a Sidbi approach to giving money to the funds, if they can replicate that approach, you know, for uh, for the beneficiaries of Atal Innovation Mission, it would be a lot more effective. I want to pick up hot on a couple of some events. One is the ban of Chinese app in India as a market per se. The issues around privacy and fake news of Twitter. and whatsapp on one hand these are good protective environments for our own startup ecosystem to build something world class at yeah. the same time you could also become a retaliatory measure for our startups which are going abroad and overseas to to build a market and which again leads to a larger protectionism uh, expansionism for the startup how would you like to probably address uh, some of these silicon valley issues coming out of uh, facebook and twitter where 
they're not self-regulating and the head of the state has to or or the government of the day in another country has to warn them about some of these misdemeanors or some of policies that they want to bring uh, on the consumers or to the governments in other part of the world. How do we address this? Uh, because obviously when our startups go abroad, we'll also be challenged the same way. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very, it's a, it's a very profound issue and it's an unresolved issue. I think this is a big challenge you see in every country, not just in India. Even in US, this has become a huge issue and no one quite knows, you see, how to, uh, how to, the, you know, first of all, let's, let's agree on the fundamentals. The genie is out of the bag. You cannot put it back together. Even if people are saying that, okay, let's break up Facebook. You can break up Facebook, but the, but the technologies and approaches that are that have been used to collect information on you and to make your consumption of Facebook and Twitter more addictive, those things you see are very well known now. So even if you put some restriction on Facebook and Twitter, uh, there's no stopping the next one to to do the exact same thing. I mean, there is a new there's a new social this thing has started called Clubhouse, and Clubhouse you see is exploding. is is audio only, and that social this thing network is exploding. It is it's the next thing to, to Facebook. But guess what? If you have to, if you join that, you have to share your contact uh, book with them. And which means now they know who you are connected to, who you are this thing. So again, again, the social networks, their success depends you see, on, on you sharing more data about yourself than typically you would like to. Correct. So, so I think that's a challenge. Unfortunately, that is a big challenge. So how do you handle that thing? It's a challenge in US. It's a bigger challenge you see in countries like it, uh, in India, where you where Facebook and Twitter are not even based. So if they are yeah. not based, how do you control that? I mean, Facebook has you know has uh, both the challenges. There were there were challenges that there were some extremely anti-Muslim rants. They went unchecked on Facebook in India. Right. And uh, on the other hand, there were some uh, and they made some mistakes on the other side also. So so I don't know how this is. This is a this a huge kind of a challenge. You see uh, that uh, that there is no easy solution to that. Building your own social network in India is probably not a solution either, because anyone who follows the Facebook model will end up doing the same thing, which right. is how do you make it more and more addictive so people spend more and more time and they are exploiting this. Uh, this psychological insight that if you are in an echo chamber which reflects your biases, which reflects you see your prejudices, you tend to spend more time on it. And another psychological insight is that that bad news travels faster than good news. So so Facebook you see has mastered those two things, and that's why it's become so addictive. Any other network, which whatever other name, if it follows the same two things to become successful, will have exact same challenges. Let me also just talk about the geopolitical interference of some of these startups. We had a Google sheet which was floating around on certain very serious issue of sedition in India and that was that went viral on Twitter and obviously Twitter did not want to take action. Does this sort of startup need to be encouraged in India or do we really need to take a very drastic action like what we did on uh, on Chinese app by banning them and that helps uh, bringing up the next generation of startup to cater to the Indian startup, Indian consumer bound by the Indian regulation and then let's see when they grow bigger whether they need to then uh, move uh, overseas to address uh, international markets and consumers. So, you know, it's interesting you raise this question and you also raise this hope is you're building the next Silicon Valley. So, you know, in Silicon Valley, people innovate and do things that are not explicitly banned. Correct. That's how Uber got started. That's how Airbnb got started. It was not explicitly banned, but it ran a contrary to all the taxi regulations in every city, but it was not banned. So it was allowed to take hold. It became a force by itself. Now now it's negotiating see with some leverage and and strength and nobody can deny that that the society as a whole has benefited from uh, from innovations like uber and airbnb assets that were lying idle are now being put to use the human yeah. assets as well as capital assets like cars 
cars, right? But if you have the mindset that unless it is explicitly allowed, you will not be, you you won't be allowed to do uh, to start anything. It's a very very different mindset that puts a boundary, puts innovation within bounds, and putting innovation without within bounds means you are giving a role to governments, which means you are giving a role to bureaucrats and entrepreneurs and innovators who would rather not deal with that. They would rather go somewhere where they can they express their ideas and pursue their innovation unrestricted in a in a completely unrestricted way. So India has to decide whether they want that Silicon Valley style freewheeling innovation and then deal with the regulations later if it creates a problem or starts a culture that unless we are you are explicitly permitted, you cannot innovate in this space. And by the yeah, way, there's a good reason why WhatsApp there's a reason why WhatsApp could not have started in India. It could Correct. not have because the day started, it impacted the revenue of uh, telecommunication companies, the cellular operators, the day it started. In India, I can guarantee you it would have gone nowhere. Started is one of companies that I know of. They started a free conference call facility for small business in India. Guess what happened? It was in its way, it was it was exploding like wildfire. This is about five, six years ago, seven years ago. Right. Guess what happened? They got a notice from TRAI, Telecom mm-hmm. Regulatory Authority of India, saying that you don't have a license to operate. Right. To apply for a license. They applied for a license and it was rejected. Guess what happened to that company? Shut down. Right. So you think WhatsApp, you see, if it had started in India, would have gone anywhere? No way. Nope. So so if you say that we want to operate like Silicon Valley, you have to have the mindset that regulations cannot keep up with innovation. And therefore, either we can say that unless you see regulations allow, you cannot do this, or we take a much more enlightened approach saying that do whatever you feel like, unless it is explicitly banned that you cannot do free conference call to small business. Unless we have a regulation like that, you are free to do whatever you want. So the so the mindset of innovation, a freewheeling innovation that cuts across existing boundaries, that's where the true innovation happens. And if you were to bound, constrict that with regulations here and there that, no, no, unless we approve it, you cannot do this. Har saans ke baad, dusri saans lene ke liye, agar izazat ki jorat padegi, innovation will not Innovation will not flourish. Only thing that will flourish is the copycat ones. Let me bring up another issue, which is the risk-taking ability and skin in the game of the entrepreneurs here versus those in the Silicon Valley. I see a very, very big gap. And how do we fill in this gap per se? Explain explain the gap in risk-taking. Many of the guys over here where when we are looking at investing are not really big around their innovation and their business model. Where their issue is the capital and their ability to take risks on a very small scale and not willing to go all in, putting their skin in the game to say, I, I, I will take it forward. I guess the, the counter side is the risk of failure for them and, and not able to to be to be able to think through their game and hence not not willing to take their the, the hardest risk on, on, on any bet that they want to take. So that's what I'm really thinking, which I find is not so true in, in the Silicon Valley ecosystem of the entrepreneurs. No, you're right on in that observation that uh, that uh, you know that Indian entrepreneurs with some honorable exceptions he- are hesitating to think big and uh, you- you're right about that I think uh, and I don't know how to solve that problem except except one of few entrepreneurs who take on a global challenge succeed from India and then others follow that model other guess others get emboldened by that success and they begin you see to take those kind of successes and I'm aware of I'm aware of at least eight to ten such companies in India startups from India which are which are becoming globally successful in B2B space. I mean, there is a company called Grey Orange. There's a company called Innovacer. There's right. a company called Unifor. There's a company called Seclor. And uh, Drua is already moved to Silicon Valley. Correct. So these are all companies that started in India. And they started solving, you see, some of the big problems that the global companies have. And they're reaching some level of success. You know, none of them, you see, is, is at the level of, uh, let's say, Google or a Snowflake or anything yet. But I think some of them will get there. So, uh, so what my hope is that that you know just look at it. I mean, India has started on this seriously on this uh, entrepreneurship in, innovation kind of journey, and only in the last ten years, the right. startup India, startup India movement was only six years, and Silicon Valley has been doing this for last 50, 60 years. So I think there is some time lag, but I think I think success like success. One or two of these glorious successes would uh, embolden a lot of other entrepreneurs to think big. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, it is the role of the mentors and the investors to nudge them into thinking bigger. I've been 
mentoring. I've been on boards of a couple of startups. My my major challenge is, you know, it is the telling attitude here. You know, they're always asking, what would I have done? Rather than challenging me to address their ability to think on a problem, which again comes out maybe in the way we've been taught in schools and colleges and the way the U.S. education system and the university system challenges them to think onto the problem and come out with a solution. I guess it's a it's a more of a cultural issue that I as a mentor also cannot challenge them. It always come back. What would I have done? Rather than challenge them to think out of the box to address that the, the solution to the problem. You may be you may be onto something. You may be onto some uh, interesting insight here about the education system and how that uh, does not prepare youngsters to think on their own feet and take their own challenges. You know you may be onto something there. But another reason for that could be that most of the entrepreneurs in India are really really young people. They're all in their 20s sort of thing. And people, you see, who become entrepreneurs when they are in their 40s and 50s, they have already had some success behind them and they could not have succeeded by listening to others all the time. They're right. used to they're used to making decisions. They're used to making trade-offs and thinking on their own. When they become entrepreneurs, they have a very different approach. So that points to yet another problem in, in, in India. And you may have some insight about why that is the case, that in India, people in their 40s who have had 20 years of work experience, they don't become entrepreneurs. I cannot think of a single B2B success story in this country. Well, I can think of some, but overwhelming number of B2B success stories in, in Silicon Valley are started by those who have had 10, 15 years of industry experience before uh, starting their companies. That phenomenon completely is non-existent in India. And you could tell me, why is it that uh, people who are married and with kids, you see, they don't take the risk. Younger people do. Correct. But, but people in their 40s and 50s do not become entrepreneurs in India. You, I, you, I mean, maybe you have some insight onto that. I do. You know, I've, I've been talking to a couple of my own uh, friends who started off late. They're at a stage in life. There are certain, it kind of mitigate their ability to take those risks to move forward. Secondly, I so very, I have been investing into a lot of B2B startups. The real challenge over here again is somebody who has an industry experience and wants to do and go global with a startup or an idea in a B2B space is really not encouraged by the VC and the early early stage investment comu- community as well because the hype created around the, the, the B2C like the Flipkarts, the Olas, these Me Too startups in the first generation have really taken uh, these senior executives not to take uh, the punt into entrepreneurship although they may have some very brilliant ideas but it's just their, the, the time to go to market, create the market over here and uh, when you are trying to as a startup trying to go to large corporates they want to have your experience showcase into other you know large corporate it's a chicken and egg story for a startup in a b2p space to an uh, an executive at who's leaving his job in his mid 40s to really do a startup and stick it on for five years with his own cash or maybe using his friends and family to really sustain so these are some of the challenges that i've seen with some of my friends and peers who have started startups uh, and they really had to struggle their way through before a VC or an early pre-VC round fund could really take a punt on them. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I don't know, I don't know what all the reasons are, but I think uh, there's something to reflect on. Uh, India will not create successful global companies out of India unless people who have deep, deep industry knowledge and understanding, which means people in their late 30s and 40s decide to uh, to take the plunge. I agree with you. Venkesh, I want to pick up a little bit on the mentoring issue here. You mentioned earlier some of the professors who have been very successful, made the money, and then they put in their skin in the game, put in the capital, started mentoring, going back to the university system and started mentoring and encouraging new set of startups. We have a very challenging problem of mentoring over here as well. And last to last week, I was actually delivering a keynote address to a cohort of startups along with the ITBT minister and the secretary for the ITBT in Bangalore. Mentoring over here is not a very glamour, a glamorous profession per se. And most of the mentors over here don't have a startup experience. I would say 50% of the mentors here are executives with no startup experience. And they make a very bad mentor. Correct. And that's the challenge here that I, I see in terms of our mentoring ecosystem has become people who have failed somewhere in their job and they decided <laughs> to take up, let's do something. <laughs> 
and then you know they bring in their failures and their fears onto the startup and this is where i would like to understand how do we really build a robust mentoring ecosystem all these atal mission i thought was trying to address it but i think it's fizzled out and that is where you know, we would need to do something about it in a very serious way yeah no i think uh, i think you you're right but part of it is again you know uh, the pool is small right in silicon valley the pool of potential mentors is massive because there are thousands of companies that have started over the last 50 years that have been successful and each company has 10 15 people associated with it that go on to become angel investors and mentors and stuff uh, so part of it is a matter of time i think uh, I, i don't know how to accelerate that because if the pool of successful entrepreneurs in india is only 10 50 100 and they're distributed all over india i don't know how you get the critical mass the only way to do that is uh, kind of uh, the kind of uh, steps that uh, india is taking just have more and more startups some of them will be successful and some of, and a subset of them you see will be motivated you see to uh, to work with the next generation startups so i don't know how to how to short circuit or accelerate that you know sending potential mentor to a class is not going to do it uh, no, i think that. we need to invite some of the silicon valley people also to say hey so have think, a look so this I, could I, be global potential so, so i'll tell startups. you what what tell you what what i'm doing in this area about 5 years ago at tai we had launched a, a program called billion dollar babies mm-hmm. and and billion dollar babies was essentially picking 3 4 startups from india that had global potential connecting them with mentors and our resources of tai and silicon valley to accelerate their global success and i'm very pleased to say that out of the four companies that we had picked up one of them got acquired druva oh, wow. became a unicorn right siclor siclor is now on to series d round of funding right and unifor is almost a unicorn it has 900 million valuation so out Excellent. of those four companies all four of them we see succeeded beyond our wildest expectations so we have relaunched the same program we are calling it india advisor program and we have uh, now we have you know, we are accepting ap- applications so these are the companies based in startups based in india who have global ambitions and we when we pair them with a very very successful people in silicon valley who want to give back to india i think that's a great initiative invitation uh, i would really wish you all the best and i guess we should so probably create is, this sort of capacity so what i'll do is i'll send you some information on that please. and please uh, spread the word excellent i would do that venkatesh i want to change gears on a very special topic about social impact startup not a very glamorous area in india we're coming out of a pandemic and there are a lot of social goods and social repair job to the last mile of the consumer that needs to be done and not to say that it's a it's almost a 1 trillion dollar opportunity as a market i have been part of a, of the regulatory setup the social stock exchange as well that would mean that a lot of the donation grants and all environmental social governance type of funding would be available uh-huh. but the real challenge here is the boot up problem of getting social entrepreneurs like what we were challenged to get entrepreneurs for startup back in 20, 2008 i think that's another big opportunity where india could become a showcase for silicon valley for social entrepreneurship how do we go about it and what are your thoughts here you know i think uh, india has a unique opportunity to innovate i heard someone in india describe that india that us innovates as if for the top 1 billion of, of the world india has an opportunity to innovate for the the other 6 billion is of the world and uh, i think that's where the social impact thing you're talking about uh, comes into play i think it's a uh, uh, india indians are full of entrepreneurship they are second to none when it comes to entrepreneurship they are second to none when it comes to innovating i think uh, i think what is the the missing pieces really are is there enough funding available and is there enough of, of mentorship available to scale up those kind of things from a funding side i'm aware that at least four or five there dedicated funds in india for social impact now they're part and, of uh, my committee regulatory committee as well where, where we have been discussing these regulations as well yeah yeah so I was pleased to learn that there are at least four or five dedicated social impact funds in India. I mean, Unitas is one, Ankur is another one, and uh, that uh, so there. The Avishkar is another one. Avishkar. So, so there are at least five <laughs> dedicated. Omidyar. Yes, yes, yeah. So these are all. So, so funding is now gradually becoming available, though at a much, much smaller this thing compared to the 
regular VC funding, but that's the way it is normally here also. So, so the funding is becoming available, and I think I think how you inspire people to become entrepreneurs, the good quality people, and uh, and how do you? I think the I think one thing the government could do is mandate that that X percentage of its uh, of its budget, you know, would be spent in securing from these kind of startups. Otherwise, otherwise they have to jump through hoops. If the government says at all levels that two percent of you know of the total purchase budget to see would go to these kind of startups then they're not competing with big companies they're only competing among ourselves and that probably would go a long way but that's just an idea i'm sure there are other ideas also but india does have that opportunity and and india is making you know progress in that direction now now before i let you go venkatesh i want to pick up one point about the concentration of uh, silicon valley in valley versus the huge geographical spread of startup ecosystem in different clusters in India. And obviously, when you are in one location and you have a whole collaboration, you can, there's a lot of collaboration between startups. What I am observing here, even in an accelerator or an incubator and, and various other, you know, concentrated clusters also, startups don't collaborate. How do you enforce or encourage a environment of collaboration. Although I made this also a point in one of my keynote that I gave in Bangalore a couple of weeks back. They're, they're just trying to do it all on run from somebody else who's already trying to solve something and collaborate. This is what I see really happening in, in, in Silicon Valley setups. You know, so here also you'd find that people who are physically together, they, they run into each other, they discuss with each other and they learn and benefit from each other. But if they're not physically in the same location, you have to make an extra effort and you and you know you are so deep down into the into the nuts and bolts of your own startup you really don't have time to to investigate and explore what other other things other people are doing outside so so unless it is in the self interest of the founders that collaboration is very very hard to take place and that collaboration happens to see you know if the investors mentors and the board members are aware of similar opportunities and then they nudge and introduce people to each other that's when it happens but ultimately collaboration for the sake of collaboration is a bad idea collaboration is it in the self-interest of the companies is a good idea and that could be facilitated either by clustering in physical location and uh, letting nature takes its course or uh, then or the responsibility falls on the mentors, investors and the board members. Excellent. I think there are a couple of uh, very, very key takeaways that we have got have we if we we were really to build india and our startup ecosystem like the silicon valley venkatesh i really appreciate you talking very candidly to us and our listeners many of them are startup entrepreneurs as well uh, before i let you go i need to thank our team over here our sponsors our our team that has created the content and i would really encourage venkatesh to take some of these discussion even to the National Advisory Council on Startups uh, when you meet to the minister. I'm sure there's a lot uh, that your experience and our experience of having dug the ground in the last 10 years in the startup ecosystem where we can probably bring the benefits of, of your experience of the Silicon Valley and uh, our experience here having worked uh, in the startup ecosystem to really yeah, make no, it I much think, more vibrant and at the scale at, uh, at which Silicon Valley operates. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great, great. Well, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate that and uh, look forward to all right. Thank Have you. Have a nice day ahead. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank